0: Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be here,
1: guys. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate being here. How so, was the uh, drive in? Was it uh, pretty?
2: I'm most jealous about driving down to Middleburg from where I live in Vienna, Virginia. So it's beautiful! Isn't it's it? beautiful. I'm jealous. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have a beautiful home and studio. And, and what's uh, what's the dog's name? This is Chloe. Chloe's her name
0: she's uh, excited for this conversation. She's adorable. She's a little upset that we're not giving her more attention right now. (laughs) She's
1: the queen of the house.
0: She is. She's that chief happy officer, actually. (laughs) CHO. Recently promoted.
2: (laughs) I want that job.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, to kick us things off, how about you tell us who you are, where you're from, what is your business?
2: My name is Yash Balsaria. I am not originally from the DC area, although I've lived here my entire life. I grew up in this area, but I was born in India, Uh, but have lived here now for 25 years of my 26 years of existence on this earth. And I run a company called American Stalls, where we manufacture really high end kind of barn products. So everything that goes into the barn, and we manufacture essentially just really, really high end. Uh, barn products. So everything that goes into the barn, including the windows, the stalls, the the doors, the flooring components, uh, everything that goes into the barn, except the barn itself. So yeah.
0: uh-huh. how'd you get into that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And I, <laughs> and I wish uh, and I wish I could say that I founded it, but it's actually part of our family business. Uh, yeah, so your background,
1: before group. before you started this, yeah, you what did you, like, you're 26? That's a great question. What man. did you do in college, and how did you get to the point that you came into the equestrian world, because you aren't a lifelong equestrian, you kind of came into a yeah. family business?
2: Yeah, well, I'll tell you guys my entire background and how twisty and turny it was. Yeah, so, sure, go for so, it. So I grew up in this area, right, and then have no equal client experience whatsoever growing up. And I had a little, I had my first taste of the horse industry. I think my senior year of high school uh, where my dad had started this American stalls brand as the equine subdivision. We'll get into that in a bit, but it started off as the subdivision of our parent company. And he was like, you know, Josh, do you want to come out to like a, to a little road trip? And I was like, all right, let's do it. And so I go out to Georgia National Fairgrounds in Perry, Georgia, and we're doing this bid, this RFP for it. Right. And I'm seeing all these horses and this barn construction and a pretty large pole structure. So that was my first taste of it. But then. Didn't really stick, um, but I kind of grew up in the family business my entire life. Uh, was and I he hoping
0: f- that it would stick when he's like, "We're going to go on this road trip. It's going to be a blast." And then you get yeah. to a construction site. Were you were you expecting that, or was this kind of him planting the seed all along for you to get into the business?
2: So I think he, that seed was planted far before that, okay. even actually. And and my actually intent, I actually didn't decide the American <clears throat> stalls route until. Uh, probably senior year of college, uh, probably a few months before graduation, because I was pretty hell-bent on going into the more glamorous steel world, which is... Is the, is the steel world glamorous? Well, it can be. I mean, if you, <laughs> well, well, and, and do you guys want me to go in depth a little bit about what we do outside of the equine space? Yeah, really like quickly? as in
1: what's... Um, like, we understand so far that you got into this because it was basically a sub-vertical of your parent's Correct. parent steel company. Mm-hmm. But when you say steel company... What do you mean? And how has your family become a steel company? Because it sounds like something of the old world with the Rockefellers. It's like, yeah, well, let's, Oh, we're in the steel business. (laughs) Well, let's uh, let's
2: demystify it. So my parents there, so we're Indian origin. So we're from Calcutta, India. Uh, and my parents come from very little, right? So my dad somehow got into the steel business, uh, because of his, of his brother who somehow got into the steel scrap business because of his uncle. And that's how him and his brother started a company essentially for commodity steel products. So like construction fencing and nuts and bolts and hardware and, and all that nonsense. And my dad moved to a 400 square foot apartment in Tempe, Arizona, and created the quote, quote, US division right. <laughs> of their wow. company. Yeah, uh, And now that company is, uh, I think it has like, I think 150 employees now, but he created that business and just worked his butt off and- 24, 25 years later, 26 years later, uh, we run four businesses. And what steel means is we run one business that goes into that construction industry, uh, all the products that kind of relate to construction, steel oriented. We do another business that goes to steel making. So that means making the steel, the molten steel and converting that into malleable products. So like steel billets, coils, and all that. We manufacture, we're the number one manufacturer in the world for this one pipe that injects oxygen into furnaces and steel. So that's one of our companies. The third company- Is
1: that that like a crucial piece of kit that like a lot of companies depend on? You can't, manufacture steel without this. Oh, wow. Right. Good patent to have. So, (laughs) and,
2: and so what it is, is there's, there's two types and without getting technical, there's a basic sort of pipe and then there's our pipe, which is a little bit more of a, there's a calorized, uh, Patented sort of formula that we bind that pipe with, so there's more longevity and it's safer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's another business. We have a power line hardware transmission business that's among the leaders in the U.S. Yep. And then we yeah. have this thing called American Stalls. Uh, wow. So steel is where is mm-hmm. is we're steel manufacturers and distributors on a global level yeah um, it's so
0: fascinating with all of this different kinds of steel that you're doing that somehow the equestrian sector just snuck its way in there <laughs> <laughs> the equine world has a funny way of doing that yeah right? yeah <laughs> and once you're in you can never get out
2: yeah well it's funny it's uh So kind of bringing it to this is like I grew up my life. I grew up in the factory. I grew up in our warehouse. I grew up in the office bugging all of our employees uh, during my like Saturdays and Sundays and like, you know, just holidays in general. My dad sent me to Vietnam. He sent me to Japan to stay there for like a, a month or two at a time to actually learn the manufacturing from the factory. So I always had like a pretty big intrigue. With the family businesses.
1: At what age did you first go on a trip to the S- developing world Six- to see? 16. 16, right. How did he break that conversation to He's like,
2: "Oh, I was it's time
1: more- for you to- Time for you to go see how real men and real money. I was all about it, man. And, and <laughs> yeah.
2: that's a whole story in and of itself. But I was like, I was, my sister's a total opposite, by the way. So my sister is 19. She wants nothing to do with the business. She's like, I do not want to work with you and dad. You guys are the worst <laughs> human beings alive <laughs> and whatever have you. But I, I really leaned in, man. Like it was yeah. like, for me. Just the two of you? You and your sister? just yeah, just me and my sister, yeah. yeah. And for me, I don't know. I it was it was the the glamorous part of it is you go to these massive million, two million, four million square feet structures, and you just have like this is what's keeping the the world yeah not alive but developing right. right? You need steel yeah, and being able to see and and the thing is like once you get far removed from the steel plant, it's just glamorous. It's mm. you have these crazy and probably. Poorly so. That's probably why lots of these steel plants are going out of business because they're so fancy on like the actual corporate side of things. But that's what really allured me to steel, is wow, like this is a really fancy, cool kind of industry to
1: be in. And it's pretty pivotal, right? Is there so, is there a lot of um is there a lot of uh you were saying a lot of steel businesses are going out of business because like the executives at the top are getting a bit too plush with their spending
2: it's that and i think with all these steel plants a lot of it is you're not forward thinking and a lot of these steel companies and this is this goes with almost any industry right uh is if you're not forward looking and if you become too complacent then in your business or in your life you develop all this fat uh, which can be either management layers, or it can be you're doing things how they were always done, and it's just it spirals out of control. Of it. it eventually catches up to you, right? Yeah. Uh, so you're just
0: constantly reacting. So would you say that your company was in more of the innovative space when it comes to this the steel?
2: Yeah, I think so, and I think that was also. That was also learned after my dad went through his trials and errors too with his first business where, you know, he built that up into an industry leader and he had to learn the hard way through lots of company restructuring that you really have to, it doesn't matter how big you get, right? You can run a large corporation, but you have to learn how to be mindful of every penny, every dollar. And we'll get into this. I think mm-hmm. like and when we talk about equestrian entrepreneurs, right. Uh, and how to run a business that's built to last, mm-hmm. but being nimble and being lean and uh, being humble, I think, but bringing that humility and in, into everything from your day-to-day decision-making to how you spend your money, to how you compensate yourself and your employees, uh, is crucial to building something that actually lasts. Yeah. 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 So
0: it is funny though. When, when people start new businesses and and like you said, we'll get into this later, but it's, you know, they want the plush office and the big chairs and the fancy paintings. And they spend tons and tons of cash before they've even really opened up their doors. So being able to keep things lean where you can is so crucial. I
2: still don't have a nice office. I, we (laughs) haven't, we have an open floor plan in our, in our company and, you know, we we put that money to, to use somewhere else, yeah. right? Yeah. So. yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, depending depending on your situation, but like you know, there's very few. A lot of companies, um, until they get to the point that they have, you know, large, ongoing, routine clients, right or alternatively they have a huge capital uh, injection from like a venture capital firm or a private equity company mm-hmm. like you'd as a boss you'd hate to see money spent oh, on yeah. like a plush office cuz you're <laughs> like that's just yeah. like like it's interesting cuz like in one in one side of the things you're like i can all i'm seeing is other places that money could have gone like yeah. we could have like for that for that nice room i could have got like another sales member on salary yeah. who could have like increase our sales, et cetera. That's right. But at the same time, like if you are in a services economy where people are your assets – if people aren't happy and they leave, the amount of pain and angst and time yep. and money spent trying to replace that person, yep. you know, you've got to keep them happy. So, it's yeah, a bit of a, a catch-22. It's a
0: balance. Yeah, especially going from an employee to owning a company. And as you're an, when you're an employee, exactly that. You love the perks. You love the travel. You love the business class and the five-star resorts. And then when you're a founder and it's your company, you just, you find out ways that you can get really, uh I don't want to say cheap, but you, you uh, can get scrappy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We've got some yeah. stories yeah. there, but, but going back to Vietnam, so you're 16.
2: Oh yeah. That was, and I mean, and, no, that was a crazy. That was a crazy that was a crazy experience. Um I flying to China to get to Vietnam. I get detained in China because of some sort of
1: You got detained in China? In China. Not a good place to get detained. No, not a great
2: place to get detained. uh, <laughs> well, that was just a passport issue on their end in terms of How long of,
0: were you detained for?
2: Uh, like about 4 hours. But 4 hours and I almost missed my connection flight to yeah. to, to Vietnam <laughs> and uh But, you know, I mean, uh, but it's fun. I think, like, a lot of that stuff, like being a firstborn child, right, like, it kind of, like, gives you that tough skin that I think you need as an entrepreneur to, like, actually do the things that you do. And that first trip to Vietnam, I mean, that just booked it for me. It was just like, all right, I'm I'm in this family business. Like, I'm invested because it was just, you know... Huge company, huge Vietnamese partner company that we have a JV with, joint venture with. And when I'm staying at their company dormitory with all of their blue collar labor, I'm wearing like the same blue uniform that everyone from the CEO of that company wears down to the, you know, the construct, not the construction, the factory worker does. Mm. And it just was like a really cool thing that you, and and I think a lot of the stuff that I learned through my dad and uh, the other businesses have followed suit into what we do now at American Stalls in the sense of just creating a company where the culture is damn good, like where, yeah. where there might be hierarchy. I think hierarchy is a way of getting things done, but, but at the same time, how do you create something where it's a, it's a team and family hybrid mixed culture and just stuff like that. So I was just really inspired back then and. Uh, did a trip to China afterwards, did a trip to uh, Japan, obviously India as well, since that's where my family still is uh, to this day, not my parents, uh, but the rest of my family. And then I came back to school, uh, obviously here. I went to the University of Virginia, which is not too far here in Charlottesville. Um, and again, knew I was going to get into the family business. So what did I obviously do? I had I, I majored in history. Uh, yeah,
0: right. <laughs> Something that you're interested in?
2: No. Well, uh- I was. I was. But then it was fun because everybody you know they they try to people who don't know me will always ask, well you know you must have done a business major or whatever, and to anybody who's like listening right like who's on the younger side or whatever, it doesn't really matter what you what your experience is in life. you can always go you know go to the other side. My dad was a computer science major he's a he's a really?
1: steel, he's a steel guy now <laughs> uh, talk about know. going. The opposite direction to like society. But I mean I, I'm gonna start off with computers, I'm gonna work <laughs> back to the basics of steel.
0: <laughs> Look at him now. Look but, at him now. He's laughing at you. <laughs> but you know, Sam,
2: Jen, Jen, like think about it. I mean, for you guys too. I'm sure yeah. if you guys thought about your guys' as bad I'm sure oh. there's I'm sure there's, there's 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 links, right, to what you guys have, have done in the past and what your skill sets are. But I mean, Pegasus, yeah, I mean I'd love to learn
1: from you guys, like what Well like like I'll go first if it's okay. Um, Well, my background was that I was in the Australian Army and then transitioned out of that and worked in defense contracting and then started a technology company that actually helps veterans transition to the civilian workplace. Mm -hmm. And then, long story short, the reason it became like a large global technology company was because we basically realized that in order to help veterans get jobs – we needed to get companies to hire people without a resume. Sure. And that required a technology solution that took the option of a resume away from the recruiters. Okay. So yeah. that they would just hire veterans based off their skill sets mm-hmm. and their aptitude and potential as opposed to hiring them off their resume because sure. a resume says, I was in the infantry for 15 years. Yeah. And, a, <laughs> a, and a recruiter's like, right. well, you cost more than a 23-year-old who's just come out of college with a degree in this stuff sure. and I can get them for half the price.
0: I'm, al- I'm also so fascinated with Sam's background. Mm-hmm. And I one day he'll do this for me, but he has had the most random job Growing up, like surf shop guy to logistics and shipping to, you know, with you with me to working for a guy who, you know, works for a very secretive part of our government and we can't really talk (laughs) about it. So there's just so many weird things (coughs) and the timeline is so extensive that I, one day I'll get the book.
1: Jen's known me for like two years now, two and a half years, and still cannot put together a timeline of my life. (laughs) <laughs> and i'm only 32 <laughs> like it's so not that complicated
0: <laughs> <things>. <laughs> it is that complicated yeah. that more i'm about an me. absolute
1: total dreamer like i remember growing up like my parents will say like no one loved movies that they knew growing up more than i loved movies and the reason i loved movies growing up was because like when most people saw fantasies i saw options I was like, yeah, if I want to be James Bond, mm-hmm. I've just got to find the person in the world who's currently James Bond and ask them how they became James Bond and then replicate. Like, replicate. that was like yeah, sure. my thought process. <laughs> I was like, that is a thing I can do. Yeah. And I just need to find the guy or girl who's doing it and yeah. then figure out how to do it. Yeah. And so, like, as a result, rightly or wrongly, I am um, just like the king of pivoting. Like I will happily <laughs> pivot are. industry, pivot well, job. Well, pivot that's career. a, that's a
2: skill you need, right? When you're in well, a
1: company. Yeah, absolutely. To a, like,
2: de- to a degree. You need to yeah. focus, but pivot.
1: Well, right. like, yeah, absolutely. So like, I'm fortunate that my last company went well. Yeah. So like I've pivoted and it's been successful. It could have not gone well. And if it hadn't gone well, I'd be 33 with not much to show. I mean, I a lifetime of great experiences and sure. skills and friends. Sure. And like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give it up for anything. Right. But like, I could be dead broke, yeah. but yeah. like it just happened that I wasn't.
0: <laughs> Rent would be a little bit harder to make. I, yeah, I
1: exactly. But and I, and I could be, a, I could be a much unhappier person who's highly stressed. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
0: yeah. but
1: yeah, like as, as, as an entrepreneur, like it's, it, it, it makes me very, very resilient to the stresses of being an entrepreneur that a lot of entrepreneurs feel, which is that, what if I'm making the mistake? Like what if this doesn't work and I've wasted three years of my life invested yeah. in this project that doesn't work and I haven't made any money and I've been telling myself it's going to be huge and it's not going to be huge and it's not going to work and then I've got nothing to show for it. And in those three years, I could have been saving my money. I could have been climbing the sure. corporate ladder somewhere else yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um so being someone who's pivoting always and being that optimist makes me highly resilient against those challenges mm-hmm. because I can always convince myself in my mind that like there's something around the corner. Well,
0: that's a good <laughs> point. So yeah, have you or your dad ever experienced those thoughts, those challenges while growing up? I mean, I know now it's a lot more established and it's not necessarily, you know, the, we're, we're betting the farm, we're putting all of our savings into this project like, you know, we have been doing and, and Sam did with his last company, but- do you remember if that was ever a point growing up when your dad was establishing American stalls?
2: Yeah, so I mean, with with American stalls, I mean, no, I mean, to be honest with you, I think it was one of those things where it was funny, Sam. Like when you were when you were talking, right? Like where you think about going in different options, right? And you think about making it big or whatever. But sometimes you just have to just commit long term that this i 'm just going to do this for ten years and i 'm going to find a way to make it work and I think that 's what that was my dad is my dad was i mean it 's not like it was all just wins he wasn 't just going to bat and just hitting everyone uh every one as a home run right he had a lot of losses mm-hmm. in his career, and i 've seen them firsthand, especially the ones that were more near my more adult side like in high school. Uh, and he's done really well for himself since but I mean I think he's learned a lot and we've created a more sustainable business mm-hmm. but I mean that thought of like man well like I you know should I be just doing something else is is on my mind all the time like where American Stalls is a 16 year old company right but it's 16 years of, but it's kind of not yeah it was founded, yeah. it was founded in 05 yeah so it's uh, 16 years old but it's not really a 16 year old company like I'll and, and I can get into that if you guys would like but like we're really a three-year-old company, in my opinion. It's a totally different brand image, different set of employees, or whatever. And to this day, I'm I'm the lowest-paid employee in my company. Like, yeah. right? like,
1: and that's that's the uh, that's the burden of wearing the crown on top. Is that like, and people you're the lowest-paid person, and you you don't get paid until it's success, which means that you have to forego minimum five, most likely ten to fifteen years of financial comfort. Yeah, betting. on the outcome that you're going to make a lot of money and have a very comfortable life 15 years from now when it all just works.
2: And I think it's really easy to get into the trap of thinking that people who own businesses, especially that are, you know, and, and, and and I don't want to continue on by saying in the sense that you can't make money because if you're not making a, a standard that's, that's good for yourself that you have to come to terms with that. This is a good threshold for me. And this is the minimum viable income that I need to live a life. That's sustainable for you. You need that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that when you run a business, you have to, I actually don't think many people even our team members or my friends would ever think that I'm the lowest paid employee at American stalls, but that's right. a sacrifice you just have to make, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, to reinvest it, to grow it. Yeah. Cetera, I mean, every,
2: almost every dollar in our, in our firm after it touches our overhead and, and our, you know, our team members, hard work and compensation is reinvested back into the growth of the company. Like we're building up reserves. We're investing in product. We're investing in marketing partnerships. So we're, so we're growing at a faster rate than, if if let's say the management of the company took out a half a D bonus, like, that, that's not sustainable. And like, you know, do I time to time think like, well, crap, well, I, you know, I'm a smart kid. Did it, what if I went to private equity instead? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, all my friends coming out of UVA, right? My friends group, let's say of 20 people, just to give you guys a ratio – Six of them are are doctors. The my friends who mm-hmm. are getting married this weekend are going to. They they're Columbia and Hopkins grads. They're going to residency at, at Hopkins now. Uh, they're going to be top doctors, right? And then the other half, of my friend groups are you know high flying consultants, private equity, venture capital, uh,
0: living the high bankers, life. Yeah. right?
2: And and when you see your friends who are making four or five x of what you're making. And and not to talk about work, yeah, it, it makes you think like wow, like you know, it would be nice to not take on all this financial risk, yeah, uh, and be compensated at that level for it. But you know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you you it's it's a twofold thing of like one. I probably wouldn't be able to hire. I wouldn't, I probably would not be a very hireable guy outside of what I'm doing just because of the way I operate. Right. Yeah. I'm a v- and then secondly, like this is what I want to do. Like I want to run this business. I want to grow this into an industry leader, uh, So I think it's a multifaceted approach Like when you're thinking about entrepreneurship, compensation, value of time. It's so
0: addicting. I feel like entrepreneurs, once you dip your toes in it, you can't go back to the corporate world. Sam and I have talked about this in the past. It's just once you make that leap and you grow something and you just dedicate your entire life and soul into making this come to fruition, this vision come to life. and. All the different kinds of hats that you wear—it's so—it's—it's it's impossible to be put back into that corporate nine to five box.
1: Yeah, I mean, like opinion. to like the thing—the thing that's addictive about entrepreneurship and starting your own business is that your job on a daily basis is to solve problems. Like every day, what problem am I solving today? Like what is happening? What do we need to do? We've tried this. It isn't working. Can we try that? That worked. All right. What if that worked? This part worked. Okay, well, let's double down on that and stop doing that. Okay, how much money do we have left? Where can we allocate it? Blah, 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 blah. Like you go to venture capital, private equity, being a doctor. Oh, doctor's a bit different, but let's say doctor, lawyer, etc. All these other jobs, you make a lot of money but the problem you solve every day for your entire career is exactly the same. the same. It's it's the same problem. Like I mean venture capital is okay, we have to decide where to invest money and so we need to figure out how to assess this company, make a judgment, file the paperwork, allocate the funds. Yeah. Go ahead. And so the There's a monotony to it. Yeah, there's a monotony to it. And so like that's the people who love entrepreneurship and love starting their own company. They just get addicted to the fact that like every, uh, you can finish every day feeling like you achieved something as opposed to finishing the day feeling like you did a good job mm. because so, a good job in someone else's eyes. Like you're you're looking for approval that you did the job well for the right reason that you were employed as opposed to like, wow, that was a real problem that we had and I actually solved it and I was able to be creative in solving it.
0: But do you, do you actually get that gratification of I solved it? And I and I say that because you know as we're growing Pegasus, there is just an unlimited number of things to do, and there's no one, there's no manager, there's no bossing like, you know, good job, you you did that well, and you know, congrats, like here's the next, here's the next assignment for you. But instead, it's just as you said, every day is a new problem, a new challenge, and so it's almost like in my mind, I've got an unlimited number of things to do. So there's never that true gratification. At least not yet. Perhaps, perhaps I'll feel differently in a year. But
1: gratification by in what sense
0: of like the completion of a project when I as an employee, right? If, if your manager hands you something and you go out and do it, and you create you create a presentation or you deliver a presentation, and it's almost like you can go home for the day, you clock off, etc. Yeah. When there's no clocking off, right? And there's and you're in continuous growth mode. I find that it's hard to feel totally gratified. I mean I know I've worked and I've done the best I could that day, but knowing that we're still climbing that mountain and maybe that's in itself okay too right you're not you're not at the top yet you're so every step you take, I should look back and say like okay that was that was good, you know I one step further, but it's just a different kind of gratification, so I'm curious when you said you know you've completed that mission for the day,
1: yeah, so I think of it I think of it as um You've got long-term problems and you've got short-term problems to solve, right? So, for example, now at the moment we are building out for the last six months uh, a way to make event registration better, right? Um, Now, that has been a six-month problem that has been the bane of my existence (laughs) as I've had to learn, you know, how is the best way to do that? And every time we speak to someone new, they give us a new insight. That means that we have to go back to the drawing board and change this or that. Mm-hmm. So there isn't that sense of completion in that, so to say. But, you know, but every single day there's like, hey, we need to like fix this in the podcast or we need to change this or people on Pegasus, the users have asked for this feature and it's a small fix, can we change it, etc. And then not to mention the problems of, you know, finding other people in the industry and how you can help them and learning from them and getting the meeting with that person who's going Mm -hmm. to help you identify how to solve this bigger problem, etc., you get the satisfaction from. Oh, I get the satisfaction from. that.
0: I get the satisfaction too. It's more just knowing that there's just so much to do, yeah. right? There's just like you might. You're right. You you might feel good in that moment because you know that you have solved a bit of that huge pie. So I'm not thinking about pie because there's pie downstairs at the moment. But uh, <laughs> but really, yeah. yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever get that feeling too? You know, with growing American styles all of the just time. yeah yeah. How big is your team?
2: <clears throat> Six people. Six people. Six people, including full-time and part-time.
1: So if yeah. you had to s- separate – actually, before we go into that, yeah. because, like, we'll get a bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Um, ha- so how – so you said American Stalls is 15 years old. Yeah. So let
2: me give you guys a quick rundown of the evolution of the company. Without yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
1: So how did it originally – like – like? That's a great – How did it originally – how did you – your father originally created American stalls 15 years ago, and why did he decide to go into the horse industry yeah. when it obviously, I, I would assume, wasn't a major market opportunity? Yeah,
2: no, that's a great question. And um, this is actually a really fascinating thing that I think a lot of people are really intrigued by. So it started off as a company called Patron Equestrian, was the subdivision, Patron Pacific. But then the subdivision of it was the patron equestrian yeah. and so my dad hired this guy who did a lot of our fencing uh industry related stuff and what he did uh joe Hodgebut was his name and joe's no longer with us and just a really good guy but joe somehow reached out or somehow got connected with hits horse shows uh yeah <clears throat> Cal, and they have actually locations in Chicago. I think they have a New York location. They have they used to have a Thermal California location, but the Thermal one is now the now the Desert International Park. Um but we won a 1500 stall RFP with hits back in 05 and that was our first ever deal in the equestrian industry. Um and that's how we got started.
1: And- but, but I would think that a 1500 stall deal, although that's a lot, yeah, compared to the industrial level scale that the other verticals of your company are doing. And that's like, I mean, when, you, when you're <laughs> making as much money as your parents' company is in these big grand like sure, industrial sure, sure. job verticals, like the, mo- the, most, the most important resource, it's time. It's not like the amount of money you can make. And I would have thought sure. 1,500 stalls <SSSSSar> <SSS> would not be worth the time. I, no,
0: 1,500. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's a massive.
1: It's about, it's a $2 million project.
0: That's a massive thing. I mean. But it's is
2: a $2 million project It's, it's worth,
0: it, it's in worth your,
2: it in your parents' line of work? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, two, a $2 million project. Uh,
0: not a rail, but how did that RFP <clears> get released? I mean, I'm just so used to RFPs in the context of government. So I, so, I really, think. it produces those
2: Yeah, and. And. Without getting into too many details, um, it's it's usually these horse show venues have a list of of companies, and American Souls happens to now be on the list for a lot of these show uh, the venues, like right? A
0: preferred
2: preferred vendor. vendors list, sure. correct? And the way. <clears throat> Again, Lucky Joe is what we used to call him, and, and Joe, uh, <laughs> <is> Lucky Joe. <laughs> yeah, and 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 he just the fencing world is very intertwined. We did a lot of agriculture fencing, so I think there was some connection there. And for us, I mean, at the very very commodity level, without and this has nothing to do with what we're doing now as a company, where our our focus is now on really innovative, safe, just really cool designs right but when you're talking about just a basic horse stall it's just four pieces of steel framing welded with some steel bars and you put some sort of filler in it right you'll put in like a wood or a vinyl or a plastic board or or something of that sort right when you say in it what do you mean in it uh so in the horse stall between, between. between in the between gaps between the, steel. the
1: yeah. not mixed in, Sorry, I thought you meant like mixed in with the. Oh steel. No, no, no. no no no! So so yeah, 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 in yeah.
2: between in the channels of each panel, yeah. you'll fill it with a, a let's say a tongue groove lumber or yeah. or a plywood or just depending on what what application you're doing. So at a very at a very high level from a company that is running offices all over the place. Building a horse was a pretty easy project. It's a very like, let's just go take this to our engineering team. It's gonna take three hours to put a technical drawing together, we put it into production. So it's not from a <clears throat> from an investment standpoint, we weren't doing anything different than when we were doing our steel-based fencing
0: before right? this point were you anticipating on getting into the equestrian no, sector so this no. was joe who heard about this rfp yeah correct and was like we have got a shot at this, this is simple correct we'll make some good cash from this correct okay lucky joe wow, lucky out there joe. hustling i hope joe is still around and can hear this podcast yeah <laughs>
2: and and uh and you know it, again the equine space wasn't a wasn't a sought-out industry for us. It just so happened to be convenient. It was more about convenience and Mm. this is a deal. We're not going to pass up on a $2 million deal. We're going to go win this one against and we won. We actually beat three or four. I actually looked at the RFP a few weeks ago and Mm -hmm. it was some – competitors that we have to this day which which felt good they're still sticking around
0: well were they pretty established (laughs) at that point because that's interesting right that was your first rfp Mm. you had no prior question experience sure you go in at it and you win it
1: yeah how how did did you come in at the lowest price
2: i I have no idea right Uh, uh, because a lot of that rfp stuff when it's not government based is very biased as well um so not really sure what was the winning factor there because i didn't see their bids uh the other companies bids uh or the bid totals but anyway so the, so that like that's how we got into the business was was with hits and then we actually did everything for that. We did a lot of other stuff. We did the turf components. We did the show jumps. And, and that's when and, – and we'll get into this in a second – is we did everything, but we didn't do every anything really well as yeah. a company back in 05, right? It was just like, let's just get this product out. Well, you've never done it before. Money. Yeah, you just never done it before. And plus, you don't have any people on your team that are equine
0: right. folks, we right? You don't understand <clears> at that point the that and and yeah. and, you know, the equestrians, the partners, the horses are – it's crazy. It's like royalty. So yeah. you can't just yeah. send over some stuff. Okay. Exactly.
1: Yeah. But that's all companies as well. Like all companies that like, it's like, like growing up, you like to think there's like an adult who sure. knows everything that's happening. But the grand majority of the time, it's a bunch of people who haven't done stuff before going, how do we do this? And then just like throwing something together and it's like, oh, it worked. You know, the, the well, client seems to be relatively happy. Well, then and then you learn, you learn and it. you improve well, you and know, that's how a company becomes You know, what's funny
2: is that HIT still uses those those stalls 16 years later. They're, they're, they're high quality steel fabricated stuff. Now, would we build the, that exact same design today? No, we wouldn't. Uh, yeah. We've grown as a company. We're a lot more mature and a lot more savvy and experienced with our design process our choice in materials, uh, what we choose to put our name behind, because that's our brand, um, and what we stand for as a company is really different. But you know, that's how we got into the business, and why did we start? You know, throwing so much time and energy and money into this Petron Equestrian company. Was we won four other RFPs in the same year. Then we won four big fairground deals where we are doing permanent sliding stall front, like three hundred and fifty stalls for Georgia National, uh, which was a huge deal for us. Again, we bit we beat competitors in our industry. Then we did a couple of fairgrounds, and all of a sudden we, you know, this is a pretty healthy subdivision of our company, and. We went gangbusters back like uh, between like 06 and 08. We threw – we had like a quarter million dollar sponsorship that we threw to the NTRA, the National Thoroughbred Racing Association. Right. So we were like a title sponsor alongside like John Deere and and all those kind of companies. And then obviously 08 took its toll on the company financially, the entire company. Yeah. And then we realized that you know this we can't throw money at this thing. It's not sustainable just given the fact that our core business is struggling and which is why – then in 2011 actually i think it was 11 is when we decided to restructure all of the businesses and then take this american stalls brand and create it as a, at a as a standalone company yeah. so it's protected uh, legally and financially and also there's a little bit of rebranding there where you can't really be in the equine space here in the in the united states and really market yourself as this international manufacturer um so that was a little bit of a savvy move on our part
0: how come why is that
2: it's i think i think we have a very american first clientele uh and you know i'm not really going to get into the of what's right what's wrong sort of thing uh of that but it's just it's just the reality of the of the business right
1: americans are very (coughs) americans uh almost uniquely proud of American yeah. made. Like in Australia, don't give a shit.
0: But see but see what I find interesting about all this is yes, very American proud love supporting American made businesses. Mm-hmm. But we love our European imported horses. So yeah. I could see a yeah. world in which, you know, there are certain aspects of business. I didn't say it makes, didn't to say made sense. It, we get to, we yeah. get to pick and choose which aspects <laughs> we want to. We get we we to, to
2: we get pick and choose as it fits us. So. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, I mean, it, it is what it is. And that's the reality of the business. So, like, you know, I, I would say, like, then between 2011 – and 2016, 2017, uh, I conveniently graduated in 2017 from UVA, which is why 2017 is like a marker per se. But I remember then, like you know, when I was coming out of college towards the late 2016, early 2017 sort of period, for me it was a de- it was a, it was a decision of do I try to go into the other family businesses, learn the ropes there, and accordingly you know, learn and play a role there. Or for me, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like it was really weird. Like it's become really popular now, but my family is a family of small business owners. Like that's just what we do. Like even my uncles and aunt like nobody works a job in our family. Even if you're running like a, Small sweets shop. Well, well, and that's a whole side. show. we're the number one sweets manuf, like not manufacturer, I guess baker or whatever in this one city in India. Right. We do all of the gourmet, whatever. But
1: you're just a a whole family of highly disagreeable.
0: Like, that's right yeah just just disagreeable people just people, like, just people exactly. we
1: can't work for anyone but ourselves exactly
0: and we especially
1: can't work for each other <laughs> i
0: didn't know this about about the sweet shop though
1: no that's, so
2: we you know have a
0: huge sweet tooth so <laughs> we, so
2: we get into indian confectioner yeah, you know uh and all that stuff so we so we have a. I mean everybody in our business is, is uh, sorry everybody in our family is just uh, it's entrepreneurship is not even a oh, it's a lucrative option. No, that is what we do, right? right? And for me, coming out of college, probably there's a healthy bit of ego involved in this decision, but I was like, eh, I'm gonna go try this American Stalls thing. And for me, I had actually done some of the catalog designing and some of the marketing work for it prior. So I kind of had like a feel of what the equine world looked like Mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, he, and then obviously I had the steel background. Like I grew up in steel. I like understood steel inside and out at the age of like 19 when i probably didn't have that great of a gpa in college um so like i i get out of this business and at the time we actually only have one employee in this american Souls brand what's that person doing everything <laughs> they do they, she did everything and i have to this day i have so much respect and admiration for what she did during those years, given the limited resources that she had access to. Because Mm -hmm. we just... For from for my dad, it was just like a this business is really not making that much money. As long as we're breaking even and keeping this alive, and someday maybe yeah. if my children are even remotely like interested in it, they can take a stab at this thing, right? Yeah. He didn't have the time to to do yeah. it. And, and your sister <laughs> is like, nope. Well, she she's like twelve at this age. She's That's nineteen fine. now, right? Yeah. So when when I got into the business, I think what really appealed to me. Was not that I was going to grow this into the next $500 million behemoth uh, of a company, but it was more so of like, wow, equestrians are so acclimated to crappy products when it comes to stalls and fencing. And the craziest thing was, Sam and Jen, is that it's not rocket science. Like building a high quality horse stall system is not hard.
0: Why do you think that equestrians have been so okay with having mediocre products?
2: Yeah. Have you figured it out? I don't totally understand it, but if I were to take a stab at it now being in the business for like four years now is the most, most stalls are procured through the barn builder in most cases. Now, we have built a business where we go direct to consumer and we go through builders and architects, but we do a fair bit of our stuff direct to consumer. They come to us after they have built their barn or they're building a barn, but they don't want the stalls that the builder is offering, right? But my hunch is that 90%, 80% of folks, let's say you know your average Sally, Joe, whatever, is building a barn and they have a builder who's as a as a guy who builds stalls and yeah. that's what they get and these local guys are like what my family business did back in 05 where it's a minimal <clears throat> viable product it's it looks safe
1: hey Are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. You can even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www.pegasus.com the pegasus.app that is www.thepegasus.app
0: do you think it's part of the the overall package so yes kind of so they're not correct. necessarily getting good quality on something specific it's just correct. here's your barn
2: this is your this is your package yeah right. correct right. so it's like i will buy a six stall barn package from a builder and that's it so you don't have you have this guy or gal this barn builder or contractor mm-hmm. who is just a really reasonable human being they're not making a, they're not running a huge corporation they're not very aspirational in the sense of you know there there are some barn builders that are really really high end and national or regional but for the most part they're pretty local they You know, for them, it's they're building a minimal viable product that looks good, that's cost effective, in their opinion, that's going to sell to their, you know, clientele. But then there's obviously then companies like us that really take it over the top in the sense of, well, we want to make sure that every darn corner edge detail of that stall is engineered and designed and finished in a way that like the horse being an animal that has tendencies of – of of just hurting itself, or or it can't be hurt, and it's and whether it's a pleasure horse, somebody is a, a horse that you just have as a like a hobby, essentially, or you have a horse, a, a six figure or a seven figure horse that you're investing a lot of capital into. You want to protect that because it's an emotional investment more than anything, right? And I don't think that your local <clears throat> fabricators and some of these local shops that have connections to how f- folks get that stall equipment in the first place take the time to understand well this is what the grill spacing should be this is the finish which you should be thinking about this is how you should probably clean your stall so you don't have all these chemical chemicals and additives that are chipping away into the powder coat um, it takes a lot of time and effort right and like for us like when i got into the business like uh, back in 2017 officially for us, it was. We built, I, I'll say this firsthand. I don't think we even built that great of a product. It was good, yeah,
0: still standing to this day. It was market
2: quality, impressive. it just wasn't yeah. exceptional. But it was good quality in terms of we were right, we were using the right steel, we were using the right thicknesses of steel, we were using the right gauge, which is the thickness of the actual sheet of steel, we were using. The right finishes, which are non toxic in nature and lasting you forever, like all of our stuff, we don't have any rust issues with our stuff because we understand the steel part of it. Yeah. But it was the design part, and it was the elegance of the product. And
0: so you had like the basic structural components, correct? Down, but it was just that artistic touch the that art, really makes the art of it, Yeah,
2: the art of it, and then the safety of it too. I think like where we brought the grill spacing in a little bit, nah you know, closer together, just using different materials and stuff. And the way we thought about American stalls then was that we actually cut out like our half our product line. We actually stopped doing permanent horse stalls for just a year of just trying to perfect our supply chain in terms of this is our quality. This is our internal quality control measures. And I essentially learned the business for one year, let that one lady go, and then was a one-stop shop for, sorry, a one-person shop essentially for about half a year and then started hiring once we actually once I started sh- to generate sales uh, enough to cash flow another employee. Yeah. Um,
0: Going yeah. into this as a one man shop, yeah. having essentially just the entire like you, you landed on Mars. I mean, Mars yeah. had kind of been built a little bit from yeah. the previous employee, but like, how did you even start? Like, what is day? What was your daily task, and how did you kind of? grow that into yeah. concrete processes that you could replicate to today. Yeah, scale.
2: so we focus like really on, I mean, for us, uh, Jen and Sam, like we were not a venture-backed company, even though we have really successful family businesses. My, do- my dad did not put a dollar into the business. Like it was whatever was in the business is what we're gonna recycle out and we're gonna build it. And obviously it helps in my case to have that safety net of, of if, you know, the business goes south, I'm not going totally south because I have the support system to fall back on. So I did have that mental cushion, right? Yeah. But for me, it was like, okay, I have to somehow figure out how to grow the damn sales of this business so we can build some cash so we can then go do the stuff that we want. Because in today's day and age, you can't do anything without cash, yeah. right? So for me, the biggest the biggest thing was, okay, our product has to be good enough to sell, so I focused on product development and quality control and all of the checks that we do and how it's warehoused, how we store it, how we ship it even, because half the times things just break during shipping because the shipping industry is a total nightmare. Yeah. Um, so th- we spend time with that and it's really just doing the stuff yourself is being on the call with customers, doing customer service, answering their questions, going to the warehouse or going to our plan. Or, you know, I, up until two years ago, I was in the warehouse doing a lot of the packaging and a lot of the boxing of orders and, and, and all that stuff. And it's like working with the freight companies and getting the bill of ladings to th- them put onto the shipment. Like you just do, you do, you have to do everything. Don't
0: need a gym membership when you work at American stalls. You <laughs> <are running around. laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's like, you don't, you don't
2: learn by like, and, and, you know, for me, I think, And without getting too much into it is I spent like a lot, I was a history major in college, but I spent a lot of time working on myself before I had the chance to run this business. Like when I, when I let that one employee go, it wasn't because I was like this 23, 24 year old kid with this huge ego in Mm -hmm. the sense of like, Oh, this is my way or whatever. I'm, you know, daddy's boy or whatever. But it was a lot of like, I mean, you talk to any of my friends about this, uh, Junior year of college onwards, I mean, I was a party animal. I loved like going to parties, right yeah. like I stopped like point blank to the point where I had crippling social anxiety like a year after college because I just buckle down i was just academics let's go get a 4-0 because i totally dropped the ball my first two my first my second year um
0: that's interesting normally it's the first year and then yeah you realize okay time to buckle down but you were good your first my first
2: year. year i was like yeah i had some of that uh some of whatever else i had in high school and it kind of followed through but then second year but then i went through this realization of like i want to be a big time ceo Uh, And what does a big-time CEO do? They're disciplined. They read like a crazy man. Like I read to this day like 30 to 40, 50 books a year, listen to like 5, 10 podcasts per per week. You're journaling, you're waking up on time, you're setting a routine, you're doing reflections, you're – you're putting, you're feeding your mind and your soul, your spirit and working out a lot. Uh, you're feeding yourself the right thing. So when the opportunity comes, you're you're ready to go to bat, right? So and I think that was part of it with American Stalls is like that mindset building that took me three years and kind of led to a lot of failed relationships and like, uh, you know, failed relationships, distancing from some friends and stuff.
1: Uh, right. So you, so you walk out of college. Yeah. You spent the last couple of years just like completely focused on...
2: That's still I am
1: graduating. Day, I yeah. But like at that point in time, right? Like most people leave college and they're like, holy shit, what do I do now? I have to get a real job and I don't know how the world works. And yeah. like, I've just found out that everything I learned is completely non-relatable to everything I need to do. Yeah. So you know that you're going into American stalls. Yeah. Like, so how did that conversation happen? When did that conversation happen with your dad yeah. that he was like, I am giving you the reins of this. And by the way, um, you're about to be in charge of someone who's been doing this by themselves for like 10 years.
2: Yeah, of course. So like after graduating from college, right? Like I, I jumped into the business like in June and I ended up letting go that one individual that we had working for us like the next February. So like over the course of, not the first February, the second one. So it was probably right. like a year, year and a half of me being in the business, okay, months, yeah. a, give or take, right? And I think like in that 18 months though, what I focused on was this is our product and this is our supply chain. We have to fix this because I cannot sell to customers and have to do all this damage control in terms of, oh shoot, like, you know, so-and-so broke or yeah. the the quality wasn't good or whatever. So I was like, you need a freaking good product before you can even build a company. You need to have that. That's number one, everything else follows. And then after that, it was very much a thing. Okay, we have a great product that we believe in. Now we have to create a sales machine that generates enough revenue that brings enough cash into the business because this business, right? We're not gonna do this business if it's not profitable. Like tomorrow, if this somehow becomes unprofitable, we love the horse industry. But but
1: but it's what are you wasting your time on?
2: It's it's not even wait. Yeah, it's just like we have to do what's profit. It's just yeah, whatever. And uh, so for us, it was like we need to build a sales machine. And in that process, I learned sales through a lot of you know just classic what people go through in sales: cold emails, calls, trying to sell people, figuring out how to sell falling on your butt sometimes, and then also learning how to sell. And then it got to a point in 18 months that I did pretty well in sales and brought enough cash into the business and enough honestly having confidence in myself that I think my dad saw it, that he allowed me to make that decision then to let that individual go in February of like 2018, I think, or so. Yeah. Um, and then I ran the business by myself for like probably seven months uh, where I was just doing everything, warehousing, logistics, customer service, sales, marketing, how,
1: how many projects could you manage at a time by yourself?
2: We didn't do too many project based stuff at the time. We were doing more of your portable horse stalls and more direct consumers. It was more like one off sales that didn't require that much project management.
0: How did Uh, you find those, or did they find you? They found us.
2: Yeah, they found us uh, through SEO or social media or website or whatever the the interwebs kind of need you (laughs) to. And so we, you know, we did that. Whatever have you. But then my focus from that time forward was we are going to build a high-end. Like We were known as a middle-tier company, I think. And one thing which which is really interesting, and we can get into this later, is I think everybody thinks that you need to have this massive team and massive budget to project a big image. But you really don't in today's day day and age. And my focus then was let's build a really top-notch company. We're going to build something that's branded as a luxury higher-end alternative to, you know, standard horse stalls. And we're going to build a brand that we can be proud of uh, and a product that we can be proud of and a customer service experience that we can be proud of. And for me, what that meant was high quality product that's insanely safe. Like we have thought of things that our clients routinely don't even think of. So we are going to do your homework for you and provide you with that education. But secondly, on the customer experience end of things, after we've actually gotten the sale is, you know, the same level of service and personalization and and attentiveness that you get when you stay out of Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton or a really nice Marriott, uh, which a lot of our customers fall into that bracket of, they expect that level of service when they're dealing with X amount of whatever is, how do you bring that into your business is You know, if a customer gives you an inquiry form, you respond within 12 hours. If you have a customer that just purchased something from you, you know, without giving away our secret sauce uh, to the public, we do a lot of really high touch point things. We make sure that they feel heard, that they feel seen, uh, and that we are a very relationship based company in the sense of I don't care if you bought two pieces of you channel like this one lady did just a few hours ago and I helped her process that order. It's like 200 bucks, man. but Making that customer feel like they are your your sole focus during that sale and any other time they reach out to your firm is a culture that I think that our firm embodies. And that's just not me. And it was funny, Sam. Like I know you were mentioning about like the motivations, like when you're an employee, right? Yeah. And one thing which I'm really proud of, and I hope that like our team members feel this way is I really, it doesn't matter whether you're an accounting person or you're in sales or whatever in our firm, I really hope that our team, and I think that's part of our secret sauce and how we've grown, is that I think they take a lot of ownership. And like I respect that of them. And I don't think I could work alongside. I don't think of ever being the boss or having my employees work for me. It's very much, we are a team. Let's go chase these goals together and empower each other. And that sounds like really...
0: There's so many good things here that like every business can take away, especially in the equestrian world.
2: Right. And it's like, I think in the equestrian world, especially there's too much of that hierarchical, the issues that come with hierarchical systems. And that's not to say that our firm doesn't. We have a clear hierarchy. I think it's very subconsciously communicated, but it's there. But if you like, at least I feel this way. And maybe sometimes as an owner, you feel a little bit blind to it. But man, like, like seeing my team members be so amped up and excited about projects as if like that barn is their own is amazing, like to me. And it's not like we're paying our employees millions of dollars or crazy compensation i think it ultimately boils down to like we're a team we're going to go hustle together we're going to roll up our sleeves and go get after it right and it's not this whole like millennial bs thing like which i think a lot of millennials are really prone to is is being too soft. No, you have to be hard, but like at the same time, like how do you operate as a team and empower folks with enough responsibility and not micromanage them and give them enough freedom and autonomy to grow and do their own projects to really crush it. Like one thing which I tell, and even if it's like, like we have this one gal who she's just, she's been with us for like nine months and she's done fantastic work is like one thing which I tell her. And I even tell anybody else on our team is like, this is your thing. You take ownership of it. I can help you. And whenever I end calls, I'm like, how can I help? Is I'm not giving you directives. It's you tell me how we're going to do it. Even when we're coming up with goals plans is I'm not going to come up with the goals for you. You come up with the goals. You take ownership of it and I'll help you steer in the right direction. And now there has to be a performance and ROI end of things too. Like where if you're not performing... There needs to be some conversations about how to address that performance sure. and and readjust and realign, but a lot of it is self corrected because of the way our team operates. It's a very long term focused approach. We're a family business. We're not going to ever sell our business, and it's it's going to stay in in the family. We're going to treat our people just the right way. Like we're going to make sure that we're taking care of them, and they, that they're our responsibility. Mm. And it's the whole thing of extreme ownership, right? Like where if something's going wrong in your business, it's not your employee's fault. It's your fault,
1: right? So there's a a lot to unpack here. Um,
0: Yeah, this is is good. This is really good.
1: So just quickly to your point about like uh, how you run your company, et cetera, um, to give that like another context is – So, when you're in the military, so I was an officer in the military, and when you're training to be an officer in the military, um, what you're basically taught is that there's this expression which says, you know, you stand in front of your troops when they're in trouble and you stand behind your troops when they're being, uh, like- rewarded basically yeah. told they're being good right and
0: and you eat last right
1: yeah and there's you know there's this whole mantra of like you know the officers eat last so the the workers yeah. eat first the officers eat last etc but the key thing in which you said is that like um your the real vow like the good leadership is like coming up to your uh troops or coming up to your employees and being like tell me how you t- like It's yours to do. Tell me how you're going to do it. Tell me how you're going to do it. I'll tell you what to change, what to keep, and I'll help allocate resources to help you get there. And then, um, and that's kind of like good leadership. It is like, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to give you autonomy. And because ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to train employees to go on and become managers themselves because ultimately, you want to, you're want a six-person company at the moment, but you want to go from a six-person company to a 20-person company. So, the six people you have now are going to end up running teams themselves. Exactly. And you need them to instill a team culture or a company culture where they're going to go on and train the next team the exact same way and, yeah. bunch, and build a bunch of autonomous operating units sure. that, you know- if you don't want like one person to fail and the whole team to break because everything's interconnected, you want them operating as exactly. individual units that are exactly. self-sufficient and can put out fires by themselves and allocate resources by themselves. Yeah. It's like truly empowering them. Yeah. But
0: also, but you, yeah, there are so many good things to unpack with what you just said. But one of the things too that I want to talk about is, so you, you clearly have a very service focused mentality where you know you really want to make the ultimate product have the ultimate experience like it's like you're bringing someone into your home It's like right. you are just making sure that they're set up for success and that they're continuously supported but my question is because you went from basically having to revamp the company from what uh-huh. it was What it you know the previous person that was there into what it could be and what it is now so before it became so apparent at that the meticulous quality and care that you provide now how are we able to shift that brand, that mindset to, you know, okay, we might have had this product in the past that we put out there, but now this is like our focus. We've done all the research on the safety of the horse, et cetera. Like how is that, that brand that mentality yeah. um, changed if you will?
2: In terms of how did I – how did we or I go about actually doing the actual change itself or –
1: Yeah, Yeah, and can I just just add like a a summary comment to that to help frame it is that it sounds like you came into a business that had a product that sold – like it was was selling uh, consistently – but it was a product that focused on being a utility as opposed to a product that focused on being a high-end luxury right right and you came in and said okay the the days of a business that sells the best quality utility stall on the market are over and we're going to turn into a glossy company that produces a better product better than the market it expects but more importantly we're going to build around the delivery of a product. We're going to build around it a company that has a great media presence that sure. looks good, that makes something that people want to post on Instagram right. because it looks sexy as hell, right? So I think so, it was- so just so is how did you decide to? Why did you decide to turn it into this whole other thing? This whole, yeah. And then what are the components of this whole other thing? And, and the reason I ask is because in the equestrian world, the grand majority of people are the first category, right? Yeah, yeah, they sure. are, hey, I know how to train horses or right. I have a, a boarding barn or I have a, a, a hay company and I am the best utility delivery of that utility in the market as opposed to like, for example, if you were a trainer, This is my mantra. This is what I believe in. Sure. And you should come to me not because I am the best trainer of horses, but because you believe in the mantra and the philosophy that I have towards training. Right. And here is the the glossy Instagram account and social media account that actually communicates that and inspires people that that's the only place in the world that I want to
0: train. I think Sam just hijacked my question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go back to mine. But, yeah, you can. That was okay. okay. Cool. Well,
2: I'll I'll take a stab at it. And you guys can follow up with whatever questions. But I think for me, it was very selfish. Like, I didn't want to be a middle-of-the-road player. I just, if we were to say, like, just car brands, right? I didn't want to build, although Honda and Toyota are fantastic (laughs) companies, right? They do what they need to do really well. I wanted to build a Mercedes. Uh, I wanted to, I always had an inkling for the luxury world. Um, And I just you know, it's going to sound really weird and fabricated, but I was like that kid, especially as I kind of grew up, like where really privileged to stay at some really nice properties around the world. And I'd always be that kid who would like ask like my parents or like the general manager of that hotel is like, how the heck do these guys like give such amazing customer service? And then also just be in total awe of like some of the accommodations and stuff. And for, for me, like when I was building, rebranding this firm is like, what am I going to have more fun just building, right? Like, what am I going to just feel is an extension of my personality and just who I am as a person is, is this, is this. And like one thing which my dad really taught me is why do you want to build a business that's not fun, right? Like, like making money is not everything. (coughs) In fact, making money is probably, you know, it, it comes with having fun. And for my dad, like the way he built his businesses, and this was like something that he drilled in my skull is, he built his business to be really global because he loves to travel. He hates being at home. Not at home with his Show sure, your mom appreciates that. She <laughs> travels with everyone. And they explore the world now together.
0: That's so cool. And yeah.
2: the fact that my dad's like, my dad's passport book is so fat that he had to have a double one stitched and glued That's that to his goal. passport. Wow.
0: I've seen that once before.
2: My dad has that, right? <laughs> And he built his business into latin america and asia because he wanted to just explore that's like that's his passion is travel yeah right for me it's it's travel and luxury yeah and i think that that's what we're doing here selfishly at a very high level and then that's where we get to attack well how do we build this luxury brand
1: and how, how do you turn a how do you turn a 10 year old utility brand and right. turn
0: it into a luxury brand. Well so that that's really the the root of my question right cuz you you I don't want to say it was a Honda before but yeah. you if you wanted to it was, call it a Honda
2: It was it was worse it was like a it was like a 1980s g- general like metro or something you know <laughs> Fiat no, no. Panda Yeah so
0: how did you turn the Panda into a Maserati? Yeah
2: I think for us it was like a lot of conscious branding. I think anybody who looks at our branding on social media or the website or print catalogs or whatever it just feels quality quality right but i think the most important part of it and i and i can't take the credit because the credit really goes to our team is everybody on the team communicates that value to the customer how so we get the job done like we say what we're going to do We'll text you at 11 p.m. at night if there's an update. I, as the quote-quote CEO, whatever the heck that means, is I will text customers tracking information if I have it quickly. It's, you know, people caring, you know, one of my, one of like our, our top salesperson. You know her name's Madeline, and Madeline has done a fantastic job in in communicating to some of our larger clients in terms of the service that we give to our clients. And she's the first one, and I think I've learned a lot from her, um, and actually from all of our employees is that they care so much about the the customer, and what I mean caring for the customer is. I'll give you guys a couple of tangible examples. Yeah. And this goes in correlation with doing the right thing and doing things that set an example for your team members is we had a real, and I I can't, I can't really tell the, I can't say the name, but we had a really well-known Olympic level athlete order, like 40 stall gates from us. Right. And he had horses coming in and it's his problem. Like it's totally his problem. Right. And I can't, I physically cannot get these stall gates any quicker than like three days or four days to Ocala. Yeah. But he has 40 horses coming from somewhere.
0: Right.
2: And we ship the stall gates on time, but then the shipping company screws up. And then all of a sudden I have his farm manager breathing down my neck and my salesperson's neck in terms of, well, I I don't know what to do with the gates. And what do we do? We paid out of our pocket for $2,000 of shipping to go send them 40 more gates and then have those other gates returned back to us. And we didn't create a fuss. It's just it's, – it is it is what it is. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's stuff like that. Or it's another customer who we have right now whose who's rubber flooring components are delayed. When we have the knowledge that their product is delayed and it's out of our control because it's being manufactured somewhere else at like the rubber mats or whatever – uh, and we have horses coming in and now all of a sudden these horses, these six-figure horses are going to be standing in portable horse stalls in concrete floors with no rubber mats. Our heart's dropping for that customer and the horses. Right, And it's that deep empathy and the compassion is mm. I think that's, when you speak qual, when you mean quality, aside from the fact that the product is the best in the industry, it just flat out is. Yeah. Like I have that firm conviction. It's the people behind the product that give a lot of, care and attention and empathy to the customer yeah long-winded answer sorry no that's fine
1: so basically it's like so when most people think of luxury luxury when if i said to someone like what do you what what comes to mind when you think of luxury people think of luxury as um like tangible items. Tangible items, the good car, the great clothes in on the Amalfi Coast the looking lavish spectacular. Vacations. So if I was to say to someone, you know, create a luxury company, the first thought might be to go create a social media presence that looks right. vibrant and pretty and has beautiful shots and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And while you do have that, the key – the other way you can look at luxury is – just high touch points with yeah. the customer. Like, Correct. just make the customer feel like they are hurt at every point of the way. The way we wish, you know, Verizon was when you call Verizon and you're complaining yeah. about your phone bill. Not and you just have that company. one person yes. on the other end of the line who's like, totally understand, not your fault. I will fix your problem for you. Just let me work with you and sure. get it done. I
0: think that's so valuable, though. I mean, I am a life for a question. Yeah. I've seen every kind of barn from backyard, a couple stalls to like the the kind of clientele that you're selling to. And my goodness, if everyone had that mindset like you do where it's not, it doesn't have to be a luxury product like what you're saying where, you know, an expensive car, but just that, that mentality of really putting their clients first and wanting to make sure that they have the utmost experience. And we actually, Sam and I, um, we actually met with, an individual—it's um, actually a couple nearby—and it was astounding. It's—it's it's a boutique boarding and training barn, and the attention to detail. And the gentleman himself actually said that, you know, we're serving, we're here to serve you, yeah. and. Everyone was just, it felt like that. It felt like one yeah. of these resorts that you're speaking about, but in a boarding barn and these people have been around for, I mean, decades, which yeah. is a pretty impressive retention rate for yeah. the equestrian world. Yeah, I mean, sure. we, we also have some friends who just recently, I don't think I've told you this, Sam, but um, a friend who's been at five different barns in the last seven months because wow. she gets there and finds out that the what they're selling isn't what you know, <laughs> you're getting so it's just uh But
1: so but on the counterpoint to that, right? Yeah, I mean the equestrian world is full of overworked, understaffed sure. people, right, who are bending over backwards sure. and they're bending over backwards to the point that they're doing themselves a disservice. Right. Like they've got no personal life that because they are trying to do everything and anything for their customers. And they are trying yeah. to give that luxury service, but sure. because they haven't got the staff and they're overworked, it just, it's not luxury service. It's just being everywhere, always trying to do everything and just being exhausted. So yeah. when has there been – can you think of any examples where even though that is your company's uh, philosophy yeah. and your approach to things – that sometimes like you've had to push back and you've had to not give that luxury service because ultimately the customer was in the wrong
2: yeah you know
1: it's um and how do you manage that and how do you how do you how do you identify when is the right time right. to be that person as opposed to being the all-encompassing high-touch Sorry. give you anything you want empathetic yeah. luxury no
2: there's 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 boundaries to it um, there's boundaries to it, not because we don't want to serve our clients, but I also want to protect my team in the sense of we will 95% of the time, even if we're in the wrong, will will 98 to 99% of the time, we will find a way to make it work. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, just with any industry, there's always going to be circumstances and times like where you just have to be a little bit firm and be professional. Uh, but just be like, unfortunately, you know, this is what it is. And, uh, and, and those cases are usually have to do with protecting the team. And I'll give you an example of like, for example, like, let's say it's Memorial day, right? And you have a client who is being a little bit pushy, uh, in terms of having to ask somebody on the team to do something on a weekend and that to a long weekend. Right. And for us, we think of it, we, I think the des- it's a subjective decision-making process in the sense of, okay, is there a true safety risk here of the horses? Is there something that's pressing? <laughs> and if so, we will attend to it because we're not as much as we want to protect our mental health and our sanity. We also want to make sure that there's safety risks that are hedged with, let's say, a product coming in late or being there for an installation or whatever have you. But when it comes to just like, let's say, somebody asking for your time on the weekend, most of the time we'll give them our time on the weekend as well. But if it's a long, uh, if it's a long weekend, we'll be like, you know, frankly, we'll get back to you on Tuesday. Like there has to be boundaries in that yeah. case in terms of you need time to rest and recharge. So I mean that's that's and that's the first
1: example that comes to mind. Have you ever dropped a client? Yeah. On purpose. Mm-hmm. And what was the uh lesson that you learned about being able to identify when a client's just not worth it?
2: I think it's subjective. I think it's a very it's a gut feeling in the sense of having a conversation with a client and realizing that it's just it's just not a good fit in the sense of they want x y and z. We offer A, B, C, D, and we can maybe do X, Y, and Z, but do we have a high level of confidence that we're going to be able to execute in the fashion that they want? Uh, and 90% of the times we were able to. That's, that's why people hire us for their barns is that we are be, be able to be really creative. But there's some folks that, you know, we just have a gut feeling that either you know, we've heard that their practices or what they're doing and their business is not really aligned with how we want to do business in the sense of maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Um, and that's just part of, like, the subjective human psych- psychological way of just doing interaction, right? Is yeah.
0: so. Well, I think you hit two really important points, which are boundaries. And then also, you didn't say this explicitly, but it's essentially setting those expectations. So when you go into a project and you – have a very realistic time frame as to when these things should be delivered and your hours and your staff's, you know, schedules, et cetera, yeah. like getting back to them on Tuesday unless like you said it's an emergency. So I think that those are two really important points. But it's Jim.
2: a and, and can I just touch upon it, it's a balance. Like where we are unfortunately or fortunately we're really like privileged to do so. Is we're in the industry of service. It's just what it is. We're we're in construction. Construction starts at seven a.m. It it's, goes until whatever, and it just doesn't stop. Yeah. So it's easier to draw those boundaries when it comes to accounting and more back end functions and maybe even marketing. But the sales operation does not stop. It, yeah. Being in sales is very much like being an entrepreneur. You're not an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur and you're working lot around the clock. Like it's, yeah. it is what it is, so.
1: Yeah, so to uh, Jen's point about uh, expectations management, um, again, another military thing was that like, when it comes to like leading people, but this is just the same for business as well. Because like, if yeah. you are a company like yours, right, where you are delivering a project, like we will build out this stall at this price point at this mm-hmm. quality. Um, you are leading them through the process, right? And they are people. And it's interesting. So in the military, you you have the opportunity to lead people when they're in their rawest form. Like it is 3 a.m., it's raining, they haven't slept, they haven't eaten, and they're just exhausted. And when you lead people like that, they don't act like normal people. Like they are acting on pure emotion a lot of the time. And what you learn is that The most important thing of anything when it comes to getting people to do what you want to do is expectations management. Yeah. Like if you say to someone, Hey, um, we're going to be stopped here for half an hour. So you've got half an hour to stop and have a meal and then we're going to leave. And then they, and then you come back five minutes later and say, Actually, we're leaving in two minutes. Go now. And they have stopped and got that good meal they were saving out of their yeah. bag and they've opened it up and now they have to trash it like yeah. you will have people who two minutes ago were more than happy to do whatever you asked sure. them to do and now hate your guts right. and will not want to do anything yeah. Yeah. so when it comes to like sales right it's the yeah. exact same thing like if you if you would start the conversation with your customer and be like look we do not work long weekends like unless there is a bespoke situation that calls for it and it is a plan for and discussed ahead of time. We do not work long weekends because I too have staff and those staff deserve to be with their families as much as your staff deserve to be with your families. So considering that over the course of this project, which is planned to take three months, and I see that there is one long weekend in there, be prepared that that is a situation that might occur. And and when you're starting the relationship with your client, they're going to be like, yeah, sure, 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 because everything's happy at the moment. But it also means that when shit goes tits up for lack of a better term
0: yeah. and <laughs>
1: yeah. when things go tits up and they are upset and if it comes a long weekend and you say remember that conversation like they can be frustrated but they can't take it out on you and it, and it, it, it makes a huge difference to preserving the relationship the business relationship the client or sure. relationship and i think it's it's a huge lesson that no matter what business you're in, no matter how big or small it is, like expectation management is like rule number one of people management.
0: Well, and communicating that too. Yeah. So yeah. many people will Explicitly see that there's- Explicitly communicating an, Well, Yeah, over-communicating. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, that's been one of my biggest, not lessons, but one of the the, the greatest pieces of advice that I can offer is just over-communicating yeah. every aspect yeah. because it's it's often in times when something like what you had said, there was some shipping components that you know weren't coming to fruition like they were supposed to be. And it wasn't your Responsibility, but because of the company and the service that you provide, you guys stepped in. But the fact that you can over communicate that and then let them know have those expectations, and then they rest assured that you've got their back. Yeah, and and
2: communication is key. You, I mean, you guys nailed as you have to always communicate to the customer. And almost, I don't want to say dumb it down, but you have to make sure you're just covering every single nuance. And I think that's part of being a professional, right? Yeah. And it's funny, like when when you two were speaking, I think in our sales process, we don't set boundaries very explicitly. But I think it's a very much like, this is us as a company. You realize that you are hiring us as, as a partner in the building or the renovation of your barn, and we're gonna be there for you every step of the way. But there's a mutual respect and admiration, I think, when somebody hires us as a firm that we respect each other's boundaries and we we'll, we're gonna work hard. We we just it's 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 a it's a weird, subtle dance. And yeah. like, and I think a lot of it maybe has to do with um the whole conversation with boundaries is what are your quote unquote work hours? We don't really have work hours, to be honest with you, besides like our back end operation. I'd say like our salespeople and I like the you know we are kind of free flowing like we but it, it, there's a routine to it like we're we're probably starting our day at like seven thirty eight a.m. and then we're going till seven eight a.m. p.m. or whatever, um, but they cre- like our salespeople they create their own hours. Uh,
0: I think that that's I mean the nine to five. I want to know who came up with that, but people weren't yeah. meant to just. Sit at their desk and exactly. have a, a, an hour break, you it's know. Good for
1: people who work internally, but if you're an externally focused staff, like yeah. Yeah. your hours are whatever your clients' hours are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, 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 our, yeah.
2: but I think like that's the that's the thing of just like there's subtle ways and it, it's totally, I think, subjective. It's a company to company style issue in the sense of how do you want to build your company and what's your, it, it's, it's like a person. Like some people are a little bit more blunt. Some people are a little bit more subtle and nuanced with their language, right? And for us, I think we're a more subtle, nuanced company. We're not a very blunt company. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The first thing that comes to mind when you said that is Sam, Sam will be Sam will say, "Yeah, it's cold. Can you can you you know go uh, change the thermostat?" Whereas I will be like is it cold in here? Are you, are you cold? And then, you know, it's a little chilly in here. And then yeah, yeah. Sam's, Sam's finally like, would you like me to go turn down, you turn know, down or turn 65. off the air, you know, yeah. <laughs> to make it a little bit warmer for yeah. you? Well, and, and it's a balance. Yeah. It,
2: it, it's just, you have to find, like, I think like whether it's you guys running Pegasus or it's any company that's trying to build the firm, right? You have to find your own tone and your own style of doing it. Like, even though we're subtle, we're in the business of construction at the end of the day, right? And we're working with architects and yeah, architects project. and constructions and builders respect bluntness and Absolutely. and mm-hmm. concrete stuff. And we do that, yeah. but there's what our communication style will be with a contractor or architect group and where it's very objective timeline driven. We're working as a team. We need to get X, Y, and Z done is very different than, you know what? What sort of color schemes or what what kind of safety features are you looking for in your stall front or your barn door design? So it's it's different, and you have to wear mm-hmm. almost different hats subconsciously, right?
1: So absolutely. the The other thing too, though, is that like when it comes to clarity of communication, is that one people who are good, down to earth, grounded, reasonable people will appreciate it. Yeah. Like it's not, it's, you, when you when you first start your business or if you're a small business and you're trying to grow, pretty much everyone falls into this trap of like, I'm just lucky to be in this meeting and yeah. I'm lucky to be potentially getting this business. Never- so I will say anything and everything mm-hmm. I have to say yeah. to get this across the line, sure, right? Sure. Which, which, you know, depending on what you're selling and who you're selling to, they might smell the desperation and it might scare them off. But more than anything, it does you a disservice because what people are ultimately looking for is, look, there's this thing I need. It looks like you do it. I don't want to spend time worrying about it. I don't want to invest time worrying about it. And I'm looking for someone who's going to sit across the table from me, tell me they understand exactly what I need and tell me how they're going to solve the problem with confidence. Like confidence and absolute clarity that I'm like, yep, this person's on top of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And if you do that- and you, and you communicate that, and that does come from being very clear, precise, and yes. can even be blunt. Some people respect the bluntness. Yes. Yeah. The, the other major benefit of it is that if they do respond negatively to it, you have just discovered that they are going to be a horrible client. Yeah, absolutely. And you have saved yourself so much pain and agony because, like- they might make – you know, You might make a little bit of money or they may not pay their bills because they're going to say to you, you didn't deliver what you said you were going to deliver. And so, they're going to say, well, I'm not paying my bills. Right. So, And you've already spent money paying your staff or paying your suppliers. Right. So, now you're in debt. And then they're going to go off and if, if you're in a word of mouth business, they're going to tell everyone that you're terrible. So, now it turns into bad PR. Yeah. And so, like – even when you're starting like a new company, you've got to be willing to walk away from those people. And if a way and be if being clear, concise, and direct is a good way of ratting those people out and finding out like who to avoid, then like the juice is worth the squeeze. Like yeah. it's no matter what size you are, no matter what business you're in, like avoid those people at all costs because they'll become 90% of your time, yep. probably lose your money and yep. will be unthankful at the end of it.
0: Well, yeah. so I do want to pivot to talking about the equestrian industry yes. specifically. So, yeah, so, I mean, you have so much wisdom to you know, in your experience with American stalls and, and, you know, working with your dad and and taking on the company, but specifically when it comes to, the equestrian small businesses, mm-hmm. what can they do differently, right? I mean, the status quo has been, they've, as you had said before, they, they're okay with a lot of mediocrity. You know, websites are old. They utilize Facebook a lot. No one's really talking to each other. There's these silos. It's just such a decentralized and clunky industry, right? So how can we help? What is some of your advice to help small businesses you know, thrive?
2: Yeah, I you know the the equine world is interesting in the sense that it's so hyper localized, um, and people let's let's say let's say you run X Y and Z hunter jumper f- training facility, right? Your your feed store is local, your farriers local, your vets local, and. You're competing in this one world, and you're just siloed in that one world, both localized and because of the types of horses you're dealing with and the types of training or competing or whatever the show venues and stuff you're going to and I don't know how equestrian businesses so farms trainers you know boarding facilities, could break and kind of bring that uh in that kind of like cross discipline mixing almost but i think one thing which i see with the equine businesses that i think that there is an issue which you kind of you know you spoke about and i think a lot of folks spoke speak about is the the fact that the industry is like really overworked it's not a very inclusive industry i think um i don't <clears throat> think it's a very particularly innovative industry
1: what um, do you mean by inclusive
2: inclusive in the sense of it's a i mean from a whole spectrum of things it's a it's financially you have to be pretty well backed to do anything in the industry you don't see a whole lot of diversity in thought ethnicity uh, whatever have you it's so there's a lot of barriers to entry right uh, so i don't think it's very inclusive in that's in in that sense um and you know just touching Amer- on American Souls really quickly is we don't just deal with high-end barns. We deal with just the average person who just wants a good quality thing, right? Yeah. And it's like, how do you bring that stuff and that education to clients more and more, right? And I think a lot of it is just, I think a lot of it over time will be, and you're seeing this trend, I think, outside of the equine space of a lot of consolidation, I think, and I think consolidation scares people or just being a handful of strong players in a given space
0: and what I don't you mean by consolidation
2: consolidation in the sense of like let's say uh there's like five social networks like facebook Amazon' I'm uh, sorry facebook Twitter and so forth, and then exactly. you have a handful of e commerce big players amazon shopify um ebay whatever have you and these people have so much leverage and have so much infrastructure in place that then we're able to get uh, a freaking iphone like like a car holder for like three bucks that we otherwise wouldn't be able so the benefits of consolidation are that you get a lot of things in get things cheaper at scale cheaper at scale right and you also get access to it in a way not even just the actual good but you have the opportunity to get access to the uh, let's say getting a like a book or an online like course or whatever, yeah. and I think that in the equine space, like it's just so darn hyper localized, and it has to be. It, it cannot not be hyper localized, right? Like your feed, your farrier, your 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 vet has to be localized. But I think when it comes to a lot of the large infrastructure things, I think like that's like where companies like my my company have a response, like a fiduciary responsibility. As quirky as that sounds. educate people and that's what we try to do right and i think that one thing which equine businesses could do is just like just have more effort of setting up social media accounts or facebook's or blog posts where they where they talk about their expertise and people are allowed to kind of cross-pollinate and kind of learn from each other and i think you see that with facebook groups uh but it's tough but I think another thing is like I think the equine space doesn't use the Internet as much as weird as it sounds in 2021 yeah. is like if you are a I mean, you can just you see it like there's small business vendors who sell on Etsy and all sorts of things. And I just think that building a good website, having a good social media presence all these kind of basics in today's day and age could just help folks with visibility, getting more borders in their facility, more event spectators or, yeah.
1: So coming back to what we talked about at the beginning, which was that um, a lot of the reason, a lot of the quality of the stables and stuff were average was because it is hyper localized. So the person wanted a new stable, they would go to the local stable builder he would outsource the stable doors and steel and stuff to the local person, and so it was an average product. Sure. So you, when you decided to go from a utility product to a luxury product, you had to figure out how to create a cross-industry, cross-discipline luxury brand and image to break into a hyper-localized market. Yeah. So did you, was there anything in particular you did on purpose to do that?
2: We spent a lot of time educating people. I mean, I think that's literally it. I think, I think we definitely do better in the English world as opposed to the Western world. I think we do definitely our brand is just a little bit more aligned there as opposed to like, let's say Western disciplines, but we still actually do really well with, with the Western world. But I think like it's education, it's blog posts, it's our salespeople speaking with conviction and confidence about what they're speaking about. And it's taking a deep rooted interest again. Like I, I, I think people just need to care more as like as basic as that sounds yeah. they have to give a shit yeah. like it's in part of my french like there's I'll give you one example which just floored me is that we were, were working on this insane thoroughbred farm right now in New York in upstate New York and this guy is getting his barn built by this one builder and this guy is this builder is a pretty well-known builder and they're getting all their stall products sourced from this company that we comp- we don't really compete with but they're in our space um, and we know for a fact that their product, if our product costs $100, their product costs $45. Right. When you're buying it. Yeah. This barn builder was selling it at 102 and then this client of ours looks at our branding and is like, I can't afford you guys. You guys are too expensive. And then I take this customer and I'm like, dude, let's get on an Excel sheet. Let me let let me show you. And my salesperson and I, we literally are walking our customer through an Excel sheet, showing him that these are the specs. This is what your builder's actually charging you. And these are the, the materials. This is where and, and lo and behold, we're doing all 40 – or we're doing – we're starting with the first phase. We're doing three sets of barn doors and 24 stalls and whatever else. Uh, but it's education. Yeah. Right. And it's people like our firm. And it's – yes, it's incentivized that I want to win that business. But it's secondly it's showing you you're getting a far superior – like a far superior product. And that's not just just subjective. It's the steel that they're using. It's the thickness. It's the – it's the galvanization. It's 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 crazy. And I was like, you're literally about to pay a hundred k for a Honda Accord.
1: Right? Yeah.
0: What do you think that is? Because that seems like such a common practice. It's like ever. It's almost like the narrative has already been told, and so it's easy for the people whomever. This not just this farm, but it happens in pretty much every industry where they hear about something, and that and maybe American style seems like the expensive option, so they wouldn't be able to afford it. And then, whatever the story is about the other company having a, a better product at a cheaper rate, it's never really questioned, right? So
2: I wonder how much of it is the fact that like in the question industry, breaking even is is good. and there's little even though it's an industry with a lot of wealth that the actual business to business level, and we're talking like really well well established facilities. Are also very business money conscious right because they don't have all the crazy luxury cash to throw around and I almost wonder it's just like because the because the equestrian industry is so profitless on the micro business level is is when you and when the three of us look at a clothing brand and we spend a hundred dollars for a pair of let's say just workout pants as opposed to 20 bucks, we're paying that $100 because there's a little bit better fabric and longevity to the product. And we know that ROI, right? And we likely have the disposable means to do that. But when you're, I, I almost wonder if it's like an equestrian business just doesn't have the cash flow, even though they want that longevity, or maybe they don't even know about the longevity comparison, like I just mentioned, maybe they don't even know about it to start with. And that's what we try to fix that education gap. But I almost wonder if a lot of it is just the economics of the industry. Uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you touched on that I want to hit home on is um, this idea of like walking the client through the spreadsheet. So for our listeners out there, a lot of people in the equine industry, they grow up riding horses. They then work as – a they work – in a stable, doing whatever. Yeah. They learn the ropes almost like, it's almost like a non-official apprenticeship, right?
0: With the yeah. working students. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And then you basically develop the confidence. You start with helping out the person you're studying under and then you develop the confidence and a couple, you get your first client and then you start your own business and then you just go from there. So a lot of them never, ever experience working in corporate, right? Working and, for
0: like, oh a, a, yeah, a corporate entity with-
1: yeah. They, and, but
0: though they, they need to make some profit, right?
1: Well, it's not just that. It's that when you work in uh, corporate sales, actually a lot of people don't work in corporate sales. A lot yeah. of people who go into sales in corporate in the corporate world do. No. But when you work in corporate sales, you start to get into a different type of selling, which is called consultive sales. Yeah, right. And consultive sales is not like when people use the word sales, everyone thinks sales is like a used car, a, a used car salesman yeah. just talking at you just trying to get to one of the do best it, right? professions yeah it's, yeah whereas
0: selling that panda and that Honda yeah that's exactly yeah. and
1: and if you look at the horse world now right that's pretty much what the majority of sales is like it's You got people are just throwing money at like a banner ad in a magazine that's just like, you know, come to my boarding barn or come to my business or buy my apparel clothings. And even if you think about Instagram and Facebook and stuff, it's all just direct old sales where it's like one way. I'm going to put something out and hope that you buy it. it, But when you get to the corporate world, you go through a thing called consultative sales, which is you walk into a boardroom Because the person you're trying to sell to has invited you in because you have told them that you can solve their problem. Right. And then for an hour plus, you have like a deck on a screen or you have a technology demonstration and you walk through- how your technology or how your company is going to solve their problem. But that's yeah. the and big it's,
0: thing is solving the problem yeah, and understanding the problem, their yeah. landscape.
1: And the conversation isn't one way. It often starts with like, so what are your problems? Yes. No, like- if, if
0: anything, I was always told in my tech sales background that if I'm doing most of the talking that I'm not doing a good job. Yeah. Like yeah. they should be telling me what they need, what their problems are, what their goals are, et cetera. Yeah. And then I help them through that. And like you said, when, sometimes you have to say no sometimes. Maybe yeah. it's not a good fit. You probably will yeah. be a good fit. That's why you're in the room. But being able to have that discussion versus just call up a number. I mean, my goodness, I was just thinking about, um, Sammy kind of hit on this where people just post ads in these antiquated platforms and just hope that people come to them and know about them. And they're all struggling to differentiate themselves. But, and as you had said, you need to, you need to care. So the blogs, the education, the outreach, the, the, you know, consultative sale.
2: There's so much noise in today's world is that you have to like do something that's going to provide so much value that helps you cut through that noise. Right. And like the, the consultative sales part. And again, I like, I I, like, I'll try to keep this sweet, but like sales process, let's say you have a 20 stall bar and you want to like redo with us. Right. What kind of horses do you have? Like what are, okay, you're building a 20 solid barn. You have 20 horses. What are their behaviors like? What do they get along with each other? Oh no, you have three horses that freaking hate each other. Okay. We're going to accordingly build like a, you know, partition that separates them. Do you, do your horses have arthritis or do they have, you know, whatever sort of previous injuries? Okay. These are some flooring options to consider. And and just a whole slew of okay, this is your barn structure. Okay, this is really not going to look good right here. Like you have vertical lines. Like just being very consultative, right? And then working with them in terms of having honest conversations of like, I understand you. You don't have a million dollars to spend on this barn. What can we do to get you what you need to? And have that that two way conversation, right? And it's funny, like you you mentioned that Jen about like the Instagram stuff. You can have a really pretty Instagram page but doing zero in revenue. Yeah. And when you reach out to a company on Instagram, what's backing that company? is the people it's the conviction it's the confidence it's the integrity and i think maybe that i don't know i just think like that's maybe something which it's not just an equine industry thing it's a very much just everybody thing like i'm helping my mom start her like new uh like really meditation based product company and stuff and that's one thing which i've had to tell my mom is like she has so much value to bring to this world but you need to not just get into the business of oh let's just sell like incense oil burners or whatever it has to be what value are you adding to to them right so
1: yeah absolutely and you know not that not that consultive sales is designed to do this and it might sound a bit disingenuous but if you're thinking about it from the perspective of you know you're running a business and you've got to make money yeah If you can get the client to sit down and talk you through their problem, and then you talk through with them how you're going to solve it and take them through the process, and then at the end, give them a price and explain why it's that price- They will be like, yep, that makes sense. And the price is no longer about you're trying to screw me, you're trying to rip me off. The price is about I understand why that is the price. Now, even if in the room they're like, well, let me go see what other people say and a few other options, because they now understand what you're doing and how you did it and why you did it they're going to go looking for that same thing and they're not going to find it. They're not going 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 to find it it because they're convinced that your solution is the solution and no one else is going to come up with the same solution. And if they do, like the chances they're going to find that person and that price is going to be cheaper is very small and therefore you're going to end up getting the sale. It might take another month. It might take another two months to get that sale, but they'll end up coming back to you or they'll buy a shitter, cheaper option yeah. And then a year later, once yeah. it's not worked, they'll come back to you with their tail between the legs and be like, okay, I'll buy what you were selling me. And Sammy, I'm willing to pay the price. I learned my lesson.
2: Sammy, what you said applies to everybody in the equine space. Yeah. Boarding facilities, training facilities, show venues. Just listen to your damn customers, right? Is. We have gone through a period of so much commoditization in like every industry of like you're commoditizing your data, your social media profiles, your, uh, oh, let's just sell all the damn saddles and boots in the world. I think we're getting to the point of like, we you have to go towards hyper-personalization yeah, to an extent that you are comfortable with and that you have the bandwidth
1: to achieve. Especially in the equine industry. Especially in the Because, space, yeah. you know, everyone, it's a huge industry. But as you said, like, and Jen was the one who, you know, explained this to me based off, you know, her experience and me, you know, coming into it and learning a bit more about it is that, you know, the barn that you board at, that you ride at is like the hub. Yeah. And everything goes out from there. Like if you want a horse- You go to the barn and there's a trainer there who finds a horse for you. If you want a farrier, you ask the trainer and the trainer knows a guy or a girl. You know what I mean? And so if there's ever a business that would benefit from a new business owner being hyper-localized and getting one client at the barn and doing a good job and being clear with communication up front, giving a fair price – performing and then using that to get word of mouth to someone else at the barn. And then, and then you go from barn to one to two barns Absolutely. and then two barns well, and 10 barns the, and there's et cetera, et cetera. Like it's the way to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the equestrian industry, even though it is a big industry, it's such a small world. And so having that greater vision of not just looking for a quick sale and just hoping to get as much money out of you, but really understanding that, okay, if I put the customer the client first and the horse's needs first, and really do good by them and serve yeah. them, then ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, my reputation is only going to go up, and and I'm going to get more business because mm-hmm. of it. But yeah. y- it's fascinating at how many people are so short sighted, and they just want to. I don't want to say screw you, but there's a there is a lot of shadiness in the industry. There's and a, lot, a lot of shadiness, and yeah. and so and unfortunately, once your reputation is tarnished, it's hard to come back right. from it. So having a
1: and yeah. one more thing, and then we'll wind this up because yeah. you've got to get going and go to your dancing lessons. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, I want some video
0: footage of this. <laughs>
1: the key thing you said there, Jen, was like it's going to take time. Yeah. And it's interesting when you when you start a new business. You,
0: it takes you, time, but it pays off.
1: But like but you, you, a lot of new business owners are in a rush, and the idea that it's going to take me five years to like get this thing oh, to shit. the level that I see in my mind is is unfathomable, but just know that, like, it pretty much takes every business five years. Ten
0: years is what they, they've well, told like, us at the tech company. Well, like, ten, yeah, ten, ten years in the tech
1: company, years, yeah. but, like, five years to get to, like, the point that, like, it's working, right? It's somewhat working. Yeah. 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 And yeah. and the, the the biggest advice you can give someone who's starting a new business is, like, embrace that. Like, yeah. rather than being stressed by the fact that it's not working right now, be – relax – in knowing yeah. that you've got a five-year runway and you, everyone goes through the same process and it's going to take five years and you'll get there and you'll get there one client will turn into two clients, will turn into four clients, well, will turn and, the, into and the people eight who clients. are
0: too short-sighted, ultimately, I mean, like I said, the mm-hmm. reputation can be tarnished. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's too short-sighted thinking. And you know? we haven't they got time to touch on
1: this today, but like if you know it's going to take five years then start acting like it's a five-year business plan
2: and I, and I and almost, planning
1: for a five-year business plan.
2: And I almost wonder if there needs to be more mentorship in, in the industry. Absolutely. Like, I think that, again, I can't speak for it because I actually, like, outside of what we do in the equine space, I actually really don't understand. I don't know, like, the feed companies and, and that whole business model all that well. But I think it will help with that. I uh, yeah, <laughs> please do. Please do. I'm looking forward to it. But it's just... Uh, I think that there can be a lot more of the bigger players in the field, or the more established or more mature players, being able to somehow—I don't know how—I don't know how you pay it forward, um, but just show people. I think it's being able to to tell somebody that you have to suck it up for five years. It's a it's a semi luxury. Like I'll I'll admit in my case, the fact that I was able to be patient uh, with how we have built American stalls. If I was living hand to mouth and if I didn't have the family backing that I did, I don't know if I would have the patience and the foresight to do so, right? And I'm also very grateful that I have a lot of mentors in my life that, like, were able to uh, show me how to do things the right way and not tangibly, but, like, you know uh the mindset and doing right by people and i think one thing which a lot of companies could do is is internships and like i know we had one our first intern last summer and we talked about everything from life skills to personal finance skills uh helped her actually set up a roth ira i think and some other like (coughs) savings accounts is like how do you give this younger generation it's funny because we're like like below thirty five so we like yeah 100. but like how do you provide these like like late teens to early twenties sort of you know guys and gals, like the infrastructure and systems almost, and the right way of thinking about finances. Doing right by people, how to even create a business? Do you create an LLC? Just just general mentorship mm-hmm. through internship, maybe, or mm-hmm.
0: a, I love that. Instead so, of just printing the papers and whatnot. Exactly, like, like exactly. The typical internship stereotype.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, and so just very quick on that point. Um, and like on that note, so a th- th- bit of a controversial opinion, but there. Are, I mean, the equestrian world is in many ways. Um, behind the rest of the professional world, right? The industry isn't as professionally and business mature. Like I'd there's agree. a lot of money passing hands, but there's a lot of money passing hands in, in a bad way so that lots of people are broken, just breaking even. Sure. So there, there does need to be internships and mentorships, but also I would say like be very careful in who you pick. Yes, because you don't yeah, want to yeah. get the wrong mentor or Correct. the wrong internship Correct. that's going to teach you all the bad practices. Correct. Yeah. Um,
0: but I also think a lot of those interns will pick a position because of the money, not necessarily all those the values and the skill set.
2: Most people don't pick on based on the values. Yeah. I think.
0: Which is just crazy because yeah. I've actually seen a lot. I mean, now I'm, of course, I'm on social media a lot more promoting Pegasus, but I've seen a lot of topics come up where people, especially like younger, right? As you said, yeah. late teens, early 20s, are up in arms about these unpaid or low paying internship opportunities. But my counter is if you are at a place like American yeah. Stalls where you are gaining such an incredible experience, not only with the business, but also yeah. personal finance, et cetera, yeah. being able to just grow in all regards, I mean that you can't put a price tag mm. on that, you can, yeah. yeah, but I think
2: again, I mean to Sam's point, right, like majority of your companies are not gonna do that, and it's just like it's uh, it, it it's really just what companies are gonna take the time to invest in their people, right yeah and it and then what what people i mean, even in my friends, I see like guys who are in private equity or consultants or healthcare sale or whatever, like everybody's just going after the next dollar. It's just, it's a mindset change of just like, what am I doing to build myself in my twenties or teens or whatever, or early thirties or whatever. So that way, you know, there's, I'm doing good work in my forties and fifties. And
1: that's one thing that's missing from the equestrian world is that the grand majority of small business owners in the equestrian world. If you think about your business having two sides, one is the customer Service, right, right. Which we've talked about today, which is the actual job of training the horse or building the barn. Yep. That's the delivery of what you do. And most people spend all their time on that. Yeah. When really you've got to spend at least fifty percent of your time on the other side. Was how am I building a business? On the business. Yeah. How am I building yeah. a business? How am I building marketing? How am I building customer base? How am I building a sales cycle? How am I building a social content strategy? How am I building staff? Yeah. Like all that stuff needs to go hand in hand. Sure. And it's when you and you've got to like actively. Learn that by reading books, listening to podcasts, finding business mentors, et cetera. And when you marry those two, and by the way, that's the fun part. Yeah, when you marry those two, exactly. that's when you'll, I think yeah, a lot of these equestrians will break out of this cycle yeah. of just running around after their clients and breaking even.
2: Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. I feel like we're going to need a part two because there's so much good stuff <laughs> yeah, to no, unlock. This was, this
2: was so much fun.
0: Agreed. I really
1: enjoyed it. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming in. Yeah,
0: I appreciate Great to see you, it. you, Yash.
1: And before we go, do you just want to tell everyone where they can find your company, your social media handles, all that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, you won't find us in any print advertisements. Uh, <laughs> we you know, we're 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 all over the web. So uh and American stalls just on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Pinterest just at American Stalls. At American stalls You've got a Pinterest page. We have a Pinterest. Ooh, I'm going to follow
0: that. I yeah, love no. American Sells' Instagram because it yeah. is the most exquisite designs. No. And I just, I, I love that you're actually working on them. Too. Like those are your projects. It's yeah. not just, oh, this random image that came across my feed. I can text you, I should be like,
2: Holy shit! Right. <laughs> well, I just—I uh,
0: well, will live in this barn myself. <laughs> I'll show
2: you. I'll show you guys some barn doors that we just finished. Up. I just got photos from uh, from somebody, so I'll send you. I'll show you guys some behind the scenes, but it's oh, it's fun. Okay. We do a lot of yeah. If you want to follow us on, I think Instagram is the best place, like where we do a lot of behind the scenes and show people the behind what happens behind closed doors in our manufacturing and stuff like that. So Super awesome! Cool. Sounds great. All yeah. right. Well,
1: thanks, well, thanks, thanks for coming guys. in. <laughs>